Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the things that's always intrigued me by people that have had some sort of life-changing experience is whether from their perspective they define their life before and after that event or whether it's just like one of many adventures they've had but the outside world needs that frame of reference yeah i'll just tell you like um, about <laughs> eight nights ago i was driving from brunswick to malambimbi in australia i was on the m1 highway right and a huge tree came down on my head on exactly what i tell you you know like a huge tree just went on the highway blocked the entire highway i had no choice but to crash into the tree I'm in the tree after the crash and the next car on the freeway just goes straight and hits me. So I have two huge accidents in, in one split moment. And that last week, it was probably closer to death than ever before in my life. Yeah. So I don't think that that near death experience actually is the defining uh, experience of my life. It is conceived by others. And because it is conceived by others, I conceive it like that as well. But when I, in general, I think that when you look at life, life happens and it's such a mystery the way life happens. For that tree to fall, you know, a night before the rains, the wind, you know, <laughs> it's so complex to explain reality. So we don't. What we do, we create a story about reality. Our entire life is narratives and stories. Yes. And we live by them. And that's fair enough. So it would be a certain irony that having survived the wild Amazon that you would end up being killed by a tree in Australia. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like the crocodile hunter being killed by a fish. I, I, I think that personally, you know, like for one is if I was a cat, I was dead a long time ago. I promise you. And the other thing is that what I've learned from this near death experience is it's me. You know, I, when I say that, you know, like death was so close to me that I could feel the cold hand of death on my face. What I did is grab that hand. I don't let it go because nothing makes you more alive than death. And death is there behind your shoulder, want to accept it or not. And no one knows when it comes. You know, we have no guarantees. A tree can fall in the middle of the night in the highway and it's over. So I think death is the biggest inspiration to live because if you die, you'll fight for every breath. You'll fight for every single day. You suddenly look at the world from a totally different outlook. And the fact of the matter, we are dying, you know, another year, another 10, another 50. What does it matter? You know, we basically, you know, I wrote a book, the second book and the last, it was, it's called the, 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 the laws of the jungle, the nine laws. The last of the nine laws is the purpose of life is death. I'm having a cup of coffee with Yossi Ginsberg, uh, who is, of course, as you heard, the author of a number of books uh, about surviving the jungle and, and the life experiences he had from that fateful series of events which now have been immortalized in a blockbuster Hollywood movie, Jungle, play, and you are played by Harry Potter. Well, he told me, <laughs> Daniel, Daniel told me, and he told me, he said, look, Yossi, I know they're going to write Harry Potter on my tombstone. I know they're going to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no, no. They're writing Harry Potter on your tombstone <laughs> now that he's playing you. Uh, but it's wonderful to see. We, 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 we've, we've, uh, we've known each other for quite some time. And, uh, you know, being both nomads as we are, uh, it, it, it seems strange that of all places in the world for us to meet, we've, 
we've crossed paths in Denver, Colorado. But here we are. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with your experiences and journey, uh, maybe take us back a little to, I guess, that fateful moment when you managed to get yourself lost in the Amazon jungle. Sure. I did manage to get myself lost because that was the reason why I came to South America. This wasn't an accident. I came to South America not as a traveler, not as a backpacker. I came as a youth with a clear dream. I came as an explorer. I wanted to find in the Uncharted, a tribe that was never explored before. My mission was to merge into this tribe, become one of them. Then, in my imagination, I would marry the daughter of the chief. Right. And then in my imagination, I'll find some kind of a treasure. And then I'll come back with the treasure to civilization. I'll write a book, I'll become rich and famous, and make a movie about me. This is why I traveled to begin with. So I just want to make clear. How, how old were you? I was 21. Right. You managed to achieve most on that list, but you never did tell me about the chieftain's daughter. Well, as you know, I like getting married. And (laughs) I would say that it's right. You know, at the end of the day, I became an Uchupiamona. I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm one of the Uchupiamonas, an Amazonian tribe in the Madidi, the only tribe in the lower Madidi. And I became one of the tribe, was initiated as one of them. I did marry in the tribe, in a shamanic ritual, but I brought my wife with me uh, from Jerusalem. Right. Nonetheless, the, 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 my, my fellow tribesmen, the Uchupiamonas, are very, very beautiful people. Um, I am their ambassador in the world today. So, and I did find the treasure as well. So, as you say, most of it was accomplished. Anyway, we digress. Tell me about that experience. Well, we were four, so it started like a joke. I met the guide, an Austrian geologist in the streets of La Paz, Kevin the American photographer, and Marcus, the school teacher on a sabbatical. In the streets of La Paz, we, you know, we, this foursome was made, and we flew as far as can, you can fly into the Amazon. Then we walked for a few days until the last community, and then we penetrated the Uncharted. For three weeks, we were trying to get to some area where there was rumors of the Toromonas, an elusive tribe that was never met before by culture. This was the purpose of the tree. And, as the rainy season started and the provisions ran low and the relationship were collapsing, we decided to evacuate. So we built a raft, but the raft was the worst thing that we could do because we, the river was wild, we didn't know the river, and that caused more strife between us. And we decided to split in the middle of the jungle. The guide was one of us, the school teacher, Marcus, tried to cut the way through the jungle and were never ever seen again. Kevin and me continued on the raft for three hours until we entered the narrow canyon, hit a huge rock, had an accident and lost each other in the river. From that moment on, I I, I was three weeks on my own in in, in the rainforest. There's no provision, no gun, no knife, um, no fire, no knowledge of this environment. It was the rainy season. It was colossal. And my journey has begun. At what point in that moment when you're alone, did you sort of lose your sense of self? I mean, did you have to in order to survive to essentially become wild? Yeah, well, the first four days I was in hope that uh, I'd reunite with Kevin. And after that, I realized it will not happen. And on the fifth day, when I was walking alone, uh, feeling like the worst victim of the worst possible (laughs) circumstances, I had my first encounter, survival encounter, because I haven't eaten much. And there was a, a fruit 
that I found on the ground and then I saw that the tree above it has fruit. So as I was climbing on the tree, uh, a snake snapped at me. It was a fruit snake, very dangerous. And uh, that split second I jumped off the tree and then landing on the ground, I had a choice. And I didn't eat for five days. So the choice of running away. So I went back to the tree with a stick and I managed to kill the snake. And then instead of killing the fruit, I ate the snake. And that was like something that I didn't plan on doing. And that is that moment where I realized that I'm actually, I can deal with it. I'm not a victim. I just killed the deadliest snake in the Amazon and I'm chewing it alive. <laughs> so, I mean, this was some So awakening. this was the turning point in, yes, in a way. It was, I call it my activation moment where, you know, it was suddenly I realized that actually I can deal with it. And it was, it changed my life forever. I never been a victim again. Never. Yeah. When I've heard you speaking about the experience and, and also writing about it, you, you referenced there were almost these hallucinatory moments where you saw visions or saw things. Yes. Well, some of the hallucinations were controlled because at night I couldn't sleep. So I would make up stories and just screen them in my head to cast myself out of this dangerous environment at night where all the nocturnals... Because it's uh, not quiet at night in the Amazon, is no, it? No, no, the opposite. At night, it, it, that's where all the activity, you right. know, all, the, all the predators. And uh, so everything is screeching and moving and, you know, there's no fire, no gun, no knife. So the only way to deal with it was to cast myself out by using my imagination because I couldn't fall asleep. So I was just hallucinating. But the strongest hallucination, if it was hallucination, wasn't mine. And this was like the most amazing thing. On, this, on my 17th day, I collapsed and I couldn't continue anymore. And I gave up. At that moment, somebody appeared next to me, a young woman, a tribal woman. And for two entire days, full two days, all I did was taking care of her walking with her, holding her, sparring her, screaming at her, whatever it took to keep her moving. And after two days, while I actually talked to her in voice, but I also made a place for her to sleep next to me, as in cleaning the rot, as in putting fresh leaves, as in breaking palm fronds, and so to cover her. And there was no one there. But I saw her and talked to her for two days. And this wasn't my hallucination, as in I didn't make it up. This happened to me, like she showed up. So if she was imagination... But, but in the process of looking after her, you actually saved yourself. And that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest, the, that's the biggest gift of, of mm. this story. That's, a, that's the biggest realization. Mm. That if you serve others, then you discover your true power. As long as it's self-centered, it's powerful, but limited. Once you start serving others, and that's the power of love, because you wouldn't do that for yourself anymore. No. But when you love somebody, the sacrifice, when you care about somebody, the giving. So it's very, very beautiful. It was very precise. You know, she needed me. And that's what saved my life. What, I mean, you mentioned about that the, the, at night, the jungle coming alive with the sounds and the, I guess, the activity. I mean, is it hard to actually put in words what the Amazon is really like? I mean, how, how alien is it compared to most of our existences? Well, you know, like the, the common expression, it's a jungle out there that refers to the Amazon as a place of cutthroat competition where, you know, like animals are at each other's throat. It's, it's very unjust description. Actually, it's one of the most harmonious places on the planet because harmony is embedded into the system of the forest. Right. It's literally an ecosystem. Exactly. 
It's a very tight ecosystem where each species depends on thousands of other species. So the symbiotic relationship, the synergetic re relationship are as such embedded. It's not about cooperation, it's much deeper than cooperation because it's embedded in the system itself. And that's another mirror. That's the treasure actually. This is the treasures that I found because we are also an ecosystem. You know, what the forest shows us is actually how we should learn and behave. And what, does the, what is the system? The system relies on three principles. One is called interrelation. All species are interrelated, okay? That means that we are family. We are relations. We're relationship. This brings compassion. The moment you understand that every, everything else, you know, like in your environment is family. When I encounter somebody that really annoys me, I remember that first principle and I, I say to myself, but this is uncle, this is uncle, how can you be upset at uncle? I remember that we all one family. Mm. The second thing, the second principle is interconnected. Interconnectedness means that there's no isolated event. Everything that happens in an ecosystem affects the entire ecosystem. We are blind to this as well. So we, we don't see hunger in Somalia as our problem, but it is because it creates piracy it creates Al-Qaeda cells. We don't see the war in Syria as something, atrocities, but they do floods of, 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 of refugees. Same for the dictatorship in, in Sudan or in Eritrea. There are no isolated events. You know? The third and most important principle of the ecosystem is interdependence. If you go down, I go down. Because your well-being, I depend on your well-being. You, and that's the most beautiful thing, you know. There is enough for all of us, okay? It's about all of us. So this is the principle of the, of the rainforest. And this is a life in, in, in the rainforest. It's life of abundance and harmony. This is not to romanticize and say that a jaguar is not a predator no. and will kill um, the deer. Or, but, or that the fruit snake would have eaten you if you hadn't killed it. Absolutely. But... The jaguar is not trying to erase the deer from the face of the earth. <laughs> There's no bad blood. There's no animosity. And he will not eat two meals, you know. So when people so, talk about the law of the jungle as hyper competition and, you know, red tooth and claw, this is not, this is not actually the, the lesson of the jungle. Absolutely the opposite. Absolutely the opposite. That, the, the jungle is a place of non-competition because competition in this condition doesn't make sense. You're my relation. Why would I hurt you? If I hurt you, it's interconnected. It will affect everybody else, including me. And if I really hurt you and you go down, I will go down. So competition doesn't make sense. There is, it's the highest competition in the world, but competition as it should be. Competition is a win-win competition. Mm. A win-win competition means because we compete, on resources, I have to be the best that I can be. And you have to be the best that you can be. Then you use that energy of survival, of being the best that you can be, and direct it not as fighting somebody else, but as getting what you want. Because what you want is not to fight somebody. You want the food. Okay? It's, it's fascinating to think about if Darwin had gone to the Amazon rather than the Galapagos Islands. I'm sure he would have still come to the same conclusion, but maybe he would have described it in a different way. I think he would come to the same conclusion because his conclusion came from being upper class Englishman, not from being a good scientist. Right. Okay. His conclusion is racist. His conclusion. Do you think evolution is racist? No. Darwin is racist. The, oh. the, the title of Darwin's book is The Origin of Species, or do you know that there is an or with another title that he suggests it's on the book? So the, the title of the book is The Origin of Species or How Preferred Species Survive 
in the struggle for life. So the second title is very interesting because it has two dangerous assumptions, very dangerous assumptions. Life is a struggle, that's one assumption, and only preferred species survive. So what is a preferred species, you know? Um, evolution doesn't depend on species because the mechanism of survival is adaptation. If you take a cell in a petri dish and change the pH around it, it will adapt. You don't need to be a species to adapt. Even the cell knows how to adapt. There are no preferred species. Yes, there is adaptation to condition. All species know how to do it. Because preferred raises the question, preferred by who? And that's what I'm saying. It, it, it came from class, mm. not from science. Mm. I mean, th this was popular in that time of uh, imperial Britain, wasn't it? White man's burden and exactly. colonialism as a way of kind of cleansing the world of, of non-preferred species. Yes. And I think Darwinism went into the Third Reich. And it still affects us because Darwinism is an ism. We made it an ism, you know. Darwin wasn't even a scientist. Yeah. This sort of idea of struggle and um, I, I guess even the preferred selection that comes out of it translates into the way we design our economies as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can see there's a big debate now around equality. Uh, but underneath that is, I guess, the belief that the people that have made lots of money are inherently morally superior because of their money. Well, I, I think philosophically, it's, you know, there's no, it's very hard to substantiate. And, you know, I'm coming from a different school of thought, which I believe that we are spirits and, you know, spirit has no material value, you know. Um, but I would say that what we have to look at is not equality, but dignity. So what do I mean is, right. you know, I believe that poverty is absolutely unnecessary. It's not based on anything. It's a very rich, abundant planet. There's no reason why we will have... How do you define poverty? Well, there is a certain, as I call it, it's the line of dignity. If you don't have a roof, if you're dressed in tatters, if you cannot feed yourself or your family, right. You're poor, and but right. beyond that, there's and and you know, as the Maslow, you know, we can go the the Maslow pyramid and see, you know, like towards fulfillment. But what I'm saying is that actually equality is having the dignity taken care of. And look, again, if you go to the jungle, nobody goes hungry, okay? Because there's plenty for everybody. Right. We, it's the same situation. It's well, plenty for everybody. They don't have an iPhone, but they have their dignity. Yes. Potentially. Yeah. Look, the, the 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 tribe, my tribe as well. When they were tribal, I mean, when they were wild in nature, they were naked, or dressed in you know some um, loin. We called them the noble savage. Yeah. But when we dressed them, because I say we dressed them, because we told them it's immoral to be naked, they became poor because they were dressed in tatters. You know, when you're naked, you can be noble. When you're dressed in tatters, your nobility have disappeared. You, you turn, we turn them into poor. Now, there's no reason they would be poor because they relied on the environment. The environment always provided. The environment cannot provide for us anymore. We're 8 billion people. We cannot go to nature. You know, nature is everything. So now we go to supermarket, okay? If we go to supermarket, we need money. So my conclusion is that we need to be paid for living. The dignity level should be covered. Just as in nature, for very little effort, you get, animals don't work really hard. We are the most intelligent of all animals. We never worked hard as hunters, gatherers.
The idea of scarcity is a false idea. We see it in our environment and we say, what are you talking about? Look, see how much poverty and misery and war and plague and overpopulation, etc. No, you cannot say seeing is believing. The reason why you cannot say seeing is believing because it's believing is seeing. By having those paradigms of scarcity and, comp- and, and, and Darwinian competition, we created the world and we see the results of our belief. So you believe in a universal basic income? Universal basic in- income is absolutely the cure for all ills of not only humanity, also this planet. Okay? And, and universal what, what, what basic income is the cheapest way. It's the cheapest way. Well, there's many research now, and many, in, yeah. in many countries have started experimenting for it. But money actually can solve and, and, and everything. But the, first of all, you know, when we talk about rich people, when the poor will stop being poor, rich people will be richer. It's not at their account. The poor people will have money to spend on consumption. The rich will become richer. Nobody is losing from losing poverty. Everybody's winning. It's not like I take from you and distribute to you. No. There's untouched, I mean, infinite abundance. But what if they just put up food prices? Like, what if they just factor in that everyone has this amount of money now to spend on food and food just gets more expensive? Uh, Yeah, I don't get into the micro. I stay at the macro level because otherwise, you know, there's so many issues to solve. But on the macro level, it will allow people, and and people do need, humanity has to find its new purpose because masses are going to be unemployed. Masses are going to be unemployed. So what will UBI do? It will allow you to get education, but this education will be something you won't choose to be a dentist because it's a good profession to support a family. You will follow your heart because the basic income is taken care of. So now there's no reason why you do something that is just practical. Do something, and that's the biggest benefit because our gift is unique. How many of us never explore our gift because all we do in life is just making ends meet? How many lives are wasted just because of the burden of making ends meet? And it's absolutely unnecessary. There is plenty here and you don't need to work hard for this plenty. We just need to change our belief system and to put mechanism in place. But those mechanisms are cheaper than incarceration <laughs> and, and health security. And secure, yeah. and, you know, it's a cheaper way and money you know, it's just, you cannot do anything with money. There's only one thing you can do with money, to spend it. You cannot, it's impossible not to spend money. Even saving is a product. You know, you always, so this money will actually make the, the economy run better. So I'm a big advocate of UBI. I believe UBI, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see it within a few years. One of the other themes that you talk about a lot is trying to reconnect with nature. And, uh, I guess the, the, the 21st century human being has lost that sense of their connection to nature. And uh, when we were talking earlier about this, it, I was reminded of that that book by that other great is, uh, Israeli thinker. No, Harari. Yes. Uh, you know, because, you know, in Sabians, he, he talks about that moment when we left the fields uh, and we started to industrialize food production. Life actually got worse uh, because all that did was that you created people now who worked and people who owned the land. Um, and that led to essentially for, for a long time, uh, uh, that break with nature led to less than optimal living conditions. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. And, you know, like the introduction of agriculture, you know, stopping, you know, from the hunter-gatherer to the shepherd and, 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 <laughs> and farmers. That's a big transition. There is a missing link that my fellow Israeli didn't, um, you know, like address, which is how did 
civilization start with glory of universities and faculties and, and science and everything just came ready. So there's no linear understanding. There's no, no, no. and that's, that mystery wasn't solved. And that mystery is very interesting. However, um, for me, uh, you know, looking at history, I actually look a lot of history. I, I, I'm, my hobby is to research ancient cultures in the, um, the Middle East, you know, so Mesopotamia. And so reading a lot of scriptures, actually, I saw something that is quite interesting. And nature does inspire me, but I'm not only romanticizing, I do romanticize on nature. That's my hobby, to go to remote places, meet tribal people, etc. But I don't romanticize because I understand that there is nothing but nature. So it's not about like some remote place where beautiful beaches or forest. This, you know, city is nature. There is, you cannot escape nature. And that's our mistake. You know, we think that nature is apart from us. It's somewhere. And, you know, it's the animal and, and, and flora and fauna kingdom. And we are not part of it. And our cities are not part of it. But in fact, this entire planet is an ecosystem and it's nature and we're part of it and there's no way to escape it. And if we only understood that, it will make a huge difference to the way we manage our life here. We don't understand that. So even the best, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but what I'm saying is that the people that try to save the world are human centric. They're not trying to save the world. They're trying to save it's humanity. humanity. <laughs> it's still the same thing. It's still not understanding that we are nature. It's not seeing that we are interrelated, all of us, that are, we are interconnected, all of us, and, and interdependent, all of us. They, they don't still see it. It's still the hybris of humanity. Let's fix the planet so we can, you know, live longer, or let's go to Mars. It's all about humanity. Nature is not about humanity. Nature is about all of us. And that's like such fundamental thing in understanding nature. And in looking at scriptures, I think that the Bible is the culprit. Because if you read Genesis chapter A, you see, as opposed to common belief, the world wasn't created in seven days. The world was created in five days. If you read the Genesis chapter A, on the sixth day, God is not creating the world. God is saying clearly, let's create man in our image and our liking, if, which means this is a replica of God. Right. In our image, it's not the world. So in the sixth day, he, he gave us all God complexes. Yes. <laughs> he created demigods and he told the demigod, you're not nature. You're above nature. You're superior to nature. Nature is below you for you to dominate and exploit. I ask, I invite your audience to please look at chapter A and C because that's scary, that conclusion. And we still carry that old myth and we believe that nature is separated from us. As long as we all disbelieve, we will never be in, in, in peace on this planet until we actually realize that, that it's all one thing. We're just different expression of one thing. So if we are going to set out to save the world, what does that actually look like then? Oh, it's so easy. It's very easy to save the world. It's impossible because we are so lost in, you know, in emotionally lost and spiritually lost and consciously lost. We're not intelligently lost. We're very advanced intellectually. And so what I'm trying to say, we decipher the secrets of the universe. We went 20 billion years back and deciphered the mystery of the Big Bang. We know what happened since that every milli uh, uh, a second. We know what, what will happen to the sun in 4 billion years. We, I mean, so what's the big deal to manage one small planet? Our intelligence is by far able to, to solve greater problems. It's not 
a question of intelligence. We do have the intelligence, but we're not evolved enough in species. You know, spiritually, we're not evolved enough. Consciously, we're not evolved enough. Yossi, it's always inspiring talking to you. It's great spending some time. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. So good to see you here. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. Thank you.